Chris. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 127. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Jordan Olds, a.k.a. Guarcinio Hall. Do you watch Two Minutes to Late Night? Are you familiar? If not, if so, get to YouTube, subscribe to that channel. You've got to see Two Minutes to Late Night. It is a metal-themed late-night talk show. The house band is Mutoid Man, featuring friends of the show, Stephen Brodsky of Cave-In and Ben Kohler of Converge. And Jordan Olds, as Guarcinio Hall, is our corpse-painted, suit-wearing host. Uh, He's also a shredding musician in his own right, and super funny. Great sense of humor, just really blending comedy, metal, two things that I love and care a great deal about, and he was really nailing it. I'm not totally clear on the current status of the show. You know, I, I believe there's a couple seasons. It seems like it comes and goes, but I will tell you one thing that definitely continues to happen are these cover songs they do you've probably seen those even if you haven't seen the show itself uh they actually as you will hear in this episode began putting those together before the pandemic but they were the ones doing the best of those multi-band member uh hilariously put together well edited cover tunes I mean, among the multitude of original content on their YouTube channel, there's a playlist with 82 covers. And these are like high quality, well-produced, you know, amazing musicians playing these and cool, fun videos with, you know, references and jokes and all kinds of just amazing stuff in there. Uh, I'm just looking at the playlist right now. I mean... You never knew that you wanted to hear Carl from Earth Crisis singing Tina Turner until you've heard it and seen it. (laughs) Yeah, cover songs of Two Hearts Beat is One, Never Gonna Give You Up, This Charming Man, and then like, you know, Converge and Dead Guy songs and Botch. And there are two Metallica covers in here. One of them is Blackened, but the slow parts are fast and the fast parts are slow. Uh, featuring a member of the Speaking Destroy Shadow Council, Doc Coyle, Troy Sanders from Mastodon, Nate Garrett from Spirit Adrift, who's also been on the show, Daniel Wildling from Carcass, and, of course, Jordan Olds, who I think is in all of these, all or most of them. More recently, there was the Passover, extra Passover-themed cover of Creeping Death, featuring Jordan alongside friend of the show and guest on the show, Alex Skolnick of Testament, and members of Cannibal Corpse, Municipal Waste, and Death Clock. We dig into Jordan's origin story, his love of metal, of course, his history with comedy, and of course, we talk about Metallica. Remember, you can keep up with everything related to the podcast at speakingdestroy.com. Keep up with everything related to me at ryanjdowney.com. The Speaking Destroy podcast theme is by the great Scott Mellinger of Zayo. And here it is, my conversation with Jordan Olds, a.k.a. Guarcinio Hall of Two Minutes to Late Night. This is Speak and Destroy.
So Jordan, I want to begin by saying I'm super excited to talk to you because I know that we have a number of overlapping interests, Metallica being one of them. And I have found myself saying in conversation lately that my, you know, triple passions are film, music, and comedy. Certainly the moment that Two Minutes to Late Night crossed my desk, so to speak. I mean, you know, I'm one of the people that read the SNL oral history that was like this thick 20 years ago, uh, you know, that uh, read every magazine article about the late night wars. And I mean, it just lands in so many, you know, I had my first kiss at a war concert. Obviously, for those folks listening who know that Metallica is usually the anchor, it's always the anchor with the guests we have on, and there will be some Metallica conversation. I'm very excited to talk to you in general and um, learn more about your origin story, because as as familiar as I am with the stuff that you've put out, I know very little about you beyond the content. Honestly, it's fun to kind of keep it that way. Right. <laughs> Mystique. Yeah. Yeah. Mystique is fun. A lot of the time, like uh, it is fun. like I have a beard right now and it is fun because i get to i i've uh i've been to invited to like a couple of shows to see some bands uh that we've that have done covers on my show and it's great uh because i i as like a mid-30s guy i'm tired a lot of the time i don't always want to like hang or whatever but i get to go and be kind of anonymous yeah i get to like just shake one hand and peace out. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great. And, you know, as, as a kid, it was great to think that King Diamond disappeared into the mist and returned to his foggy castle. But then it was also great as an adult to see a picture of him in front of his Christmas tree. I, I'm a big fan of Mystique, but at the same time, I'm I'm as greedy as everyone else and, and wanting that peek behind the curtain with certain figures that we revere but yeah i can imagine having that level of anonymity of uh you know you get to be the marvel superhero going to a baseball game a mar a hero is uh <laughs> is a bit of a high term for it but it is funny like i i uh i i met uh dave witty from musical waste for the first time burnt by the sun eight million other great bands yeah a one of the greats uh, and he and I talk pr like pretty like decently frequently on the internet of like sharing little vegan recipes and stuff. Mostly me uh, asking him for tips on whatnot. But I uh, we met on Thursday, and he did not realize that he met me. He texted me three days later and was like, "Was that? Wait a minute, was that you?" It is part of the fun uh, of being like a like a little makeup character yeah you get to be like kiss in the 70s where you know there'd be there'd be a picture of gene simmons with Cher, and he's got like a he's holding like a newspaper over his face or yeah you yeah. know like i think like 15 year old me would be like would be like oh that feels it's it's a, it's a bummer that i'm not like attributed to the thing that i'm making or whatever or, like people don't it, it always i like oh it's weird i don't get in-person credit for stuff but i love it yeah i love it i think it's um i think it's great that i can just go and and uh do my own thing out like out in the in the in the little metal universe it's great and you get you get to work out your creative extroverted side on your own terms in your own safe space so to speak 
and then yeah. live the rest of your life as a civilian. Yeah, you know, seeing, um, I guess, like seeing uh, my like friends who just have to be on all the time have to interact with a lot. Like, I love, I love to like meet a fan. Like, if someone knows who I am, like they put a lot of effort into. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah to figure yeah. that out and i am always happy to talk uh to folks but i am i i i i at this point honestly i am grateful that it can be on such a small scale for me and i don't have to i'm not always the thing out in yeah, the street that's perfect it's literally something you can put take on and off which yeah i'm sure a lot of uh you know people in bands and things often wish that I, they could I've I've heard that. So I feel I definitely I do feel grateful for it. But to bring it back to the you said you had your first kiss at a guar show. Yes. First time I ever saw a guar, a couple was breaking up in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so see to, see together you and I form bookends. Yes. Now now we have a complete story. <laughs> we're we're Jane Doe but at guar shows. <laughs> yeah, watching like uh, a guy just go like, "What can I do?" While blood and cum, <laughs> everyone was crazy. It was insane. That was me at fourteen in the back of. Uh, and now this was, you know, I'm dating myself, obviously, but this was Guar on their first album, "Hello," pre Metal Blade even, and they were playing uh, the ballroom of a Howard Johnson's hotel in Indianapolis, Indiana. And here's and here's what's great is you know sparsely con- attended. Uh, relative to the heights that war would would soon go on to and yet the most impressive thing about it in retrospect is that they had full production in that howard johnson's ballroom yeah like they i mean they you know the costumes the blood the guts uh all of it the lore the mythology like it was all in place already that long ago which is just pretty amazing to see how they've the world building they've done since then it rocks to so come out the gate having it all planned out. Geniuses, the gu- the the best silly guys. The best silly guys. Let's go back to your silly guy origin. I don't want to. I don't want to yours too because I feel like you and I can go on a, a hundred tangents, and and we probably will, and it'll be great. But I want to go back to uh, what was your first exposure to music? Did you you know stuff you heard around the house, siblings, parents, and at what point did you realize? not only is this something that I love, but this is something I need to participate in somehow. I need to be involved in this world. Um, I think uh, growing up, it was probably like, I grew up with uh, like my dad likes classical music a lot. So I grew up with uh, Vivaldi and Bach. uh, And I still, Vivaldi was like my number one of like classical guys. And then I don't know. I feel I feel like I heard uh, I, when I started to find my own type of music. I heard like uh, a kid on the playground talking about how like fucked up corn was. And he was like, "Oh, you you can't listen to them. They're so scary. They just think about clowns." And uh, and he's mad. He's so mad at his dad at the end of the album. It's so it's so crazy. And I was like, "That sounds crazy." So I. Checked it out, and then Corn became kind of my first favorite band. And I think how uh, simple everything 
was to like at least uh like a not composition wise but just like note for note how simple corn was it made me feel like it was something that i could do mm. how to in not a dumb way in a cool way and and i think that that's also how uh i think at the same time like new metal and also like hardcore uh kind of succeeding at the same time in the late 90s made a lot of kids feel like they could play music and and feel a part of something so that that kicked a lot of ass if i heard metallica first i think i would have been too intimidated that's great because i've never heard new metal put into that context i've heard it about um thrash metal crossover certainly hardcore and punk but i've I've never heard new metal described that way and that's you know generationally and that's really inspiring i'm I'm glad to hear that you know because yeah you you often hear about folks who discovered kiss or you know led zeppelin or something that was larger than life or something that was really technically proficient and then they would go see something locally and it's you know a band in a vfw hall and those would kind of be aha moments of like, oh, I can do that. And I actually, a couple months ago, uh, was doing an interview with Tom Morello and he talked about going to see The Clash and realizing that uh, the his you know little amp that he had at home was the same amp that Joe Strummer was playing through. And that was like his aha moment of, oh, that's, I got the same thing he's got. I could, I could do what he's doing. And yeah, those light bulb moments of accessibility, I think are so crucial. And it's, it's inspiring to hear that that was uh, true with those bands of the new metal era, because yeah, certainly, it, uh, you know, it was, it was known as a like guitar solo free, no frills kind of stripped down rhythmic street level sort of metal at its best. I think it's, a, I, I, I think most, I think each version of new metal, like for me, in every bit of music, I feel like there's stuff that I like and then there's stuff that I don't like. I think that that should kind of go. I don't. I think anyone who goes into any genre of music assuming they're not going to like the entire genre is crazy. Yeah. There's People no- are like, I hate country music. And then you're like, well, what have you heard? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like there's there's got to be some avenue you turn outside down. of like a dentist's office. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's not it, it like you you. You have not heard like crazy Hazel Adkins. You haven't listened to the Hanks. Uh, and even if you're if you're like, well, those are all old, but it, there's like still like a Sturgill's Simpson or like a Tyler Childers at, that exists today who are whipping ass. The first time I went to Stagecoach, uh, Sugarland was covering Beyonce on the main stage. But the Palominos stage was Ray Price, little Jimmy Dickens. Uh, I think he might even be a smaller stage. Uh, Chris Isaac, Merle Haggard. You know, it was like, that's where you want it to be. And that's what's great about an event like that is it's they have the gateway big ticket items on the main stage and then a nice second stage of the. Uh... Yeah, big. What uh, One of my mom's favorites. So grew up with a lot of Chris Isaac. I mean, if you're a metalhead that likes Danzig. And you don't like Chris Isaac, you should go listen to some more Chris Isaac because oh. you'll probably figure out that you do. Yeah. Danzig, uh, Danzig is, is my favorite, um, just musician, both as like an actual creative and also as like a, as like a celebrity figure. I think he's, he's unbelievable. He's so, he, his like, 
outward persona. Like I've never met hmm. him, so I don't know what he's like. But I love. I think the public perception of him, like even at its worst, is is so funny and harmless that I think it's great. Like everything, everything he does is, uh, or everything that people like will throw at him. It's all so funny and it has no effect on anyone else's life, which is fucking great. And also as an artist, no one else in the entire sphere can say that they started three iconic bands. Everything he tried as far as switching labels, like it all worked. It all had such a big impact. Each of each of the bands have influenced like such important genres, punk, goth, and metal. It's unbelievable. People like I, I, I think people throw a lot at him for, you know, uh having like some perceived grumpiness or like maybe like uh you know the the later Danzig albums don't match up to like the early four but he had like you got it's not even just that Danzig had four iconic albums that are sick it's that you got to include Sam Hain and the Misfits in that like that's so much music that's so many songs that he's responsible for and even within just the scope of the Misfits existing less time than the Beatles, right? 77 to 83, even just within there, the number of eras and incarnations of the Misfits in that six-year span is incredible. And, so and, and each part of or responsible for a different sort of genre. Because when you take it back to, I mean, they were there as part of 77 Punk. Yeah. And there's old photos of Jerry dressed like Sid Vicious with blue hair. And, you know, I mean, they were they were right there. I mean, their first show was playing an audition at CBGB's. Yep. You know, we just passed the anniversary of that show actually a couple days ago. And yeah. And then when you take that into what they morphed into and with the double locks and also there's a certain aesthetic, a certain type of artwork. And I'm just keeping this, I, I would say, up through maybe the first Danzig album, mm -hmm. there's a certain aesthetic, right? There's like, if you tell someone that you're into bootleg culture, you're into bootleg t-shirts, we tend to know that that means like, Oh, someone made this really killer Peter Steele enamel pin that's shaped like a coffin that has this engraving of him. And there's 50 and you got to buy it from this girl in Italy on Instagram before they run out. Right. In, in General pop culture bootleg is thought of more as here's some yahoos outside of the stadium selling, you know, misprinted Metallica shirts and ripping you off. And I think you know, the reason why I mentioned that is because there's like shameless biting of styles when it comes to clothing and album covers and things like that. And then there's what Danzig did, which I think was was really a type of curation and uh almost aggregation the way that like there used to be news outlets and then there was like the huffington post where they just gathered news from all the other outlets and put it in one spot yep. you know digging up so i mean as much as you could argue they didn't create the crimson ghost for example that thing that iconic image would have been lost to history forever yeah had it not been appropriated and stylized and 
use to become this or people that want to go, Hey, did you know that Danzig skull is actually the cover of Crystar, the crystal, what you know, obscure I was around and collecting those toys and had that comic book. And it was, it was a bust. Like it was obscure and not popular as a Marvel comic. And that was just a random skull on the cover of a random issue. It became the Danzig skull because of Danzig having the eye to find it. And then the aesthetic know-how and, and vision to yeah. make it stand for what it does. So I, I, I find that there's a, there was just some knack that he had to just create a look and a feel for things that is just unbeatable. And that's, that's to say nothing of, as you said, I mean, all the way through Danzig 4, untouchable, flawless catalog of music. Misfit Samhain Danzig. Yeah. Not a single misstep all the way through the first four dancing records. Even the even the tiny missteps kick ass on those. Like when at the beginning of How the Gods Kill, which is my favorite uh dancing song, um his he like only would come in and like do one take and then he as minimal takes as they would let him. Uh he sings the song and then uh like Rick and the engineer are like Oh shit. Uh we left that like bass head on. Can you give it another take? And he was like, fuck no. And like they have to mix out like anytime his vocals pop in, there's like a tiny like little fuzz from them having to EQ out like a bass head fuzz, which I think is so funny. Um and I don't to bring up the the like dancing appropriating the the skulls and like reusing them in their own way. I think that so much of our culture now, like I, everything is like influenced or inspired by something. Like we're all borrowing um, from something else and kind of recontextualizing it. Yeah, that's a great uh, word too. As in in art, like we it, not everything everything is is a piece of something and i think it even comes back to like metallica like they're they're like i brought up classical music uh earlier their entire like their first four out or first three albums are all structured like classical music that's why the length of the songs work so well is because cliff has is the is the one inspired by like classical composition and it comes through and it's fucking great if they didn't if there if it wasn't for appropriate aping like that style of uh of composing you don't get it, it like there might not be enough to separate metallica from the pack i would say you can make an argument yeah i would i would i would agree that that's one of the central components one of the elements that distinguished it and yeah i think recontextualizing is a great word and and curating both in that you know danzig had the vision to take from a famous monsters of film land and mm. you know a uh you know the, the uh, pre-code horror comic books and b-movie posters and you know italian cinema and all the stuff that he was drawing from knowing which things to pull from, how they fit together, and how to shape it and make it his. And that's 
really what great bands do when they make music, right? I mean, Metallica is just Motorhead and Diamond Head through the vision of like this, you know, kid raised by Bohemian parents in Denmark that, it, you know, Deep Purple and jazz and all this. And then Hetfield is, is uh, red-blooded American as it gets. All those elements coming together and then create something great. And it doesn't change that. It, it, it's not it's not as simple as oh you're just borrowing it's no you're you're borrowing the right things from the right places and you have the vision to know which pieces fit together yeah like taking elements from stuff that you love and using it's i think there is a difference between like uh the way in which you i think there's a difference between like stealing a song entirely and like repurposing or being inspired by a riff to a certain extent like <laughs> every band every single band right now has like the 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 conversation where they're like uh if they're talking about how to put a song together they're like all right we should take the we should take the hate breed riff and put it next to the battery riff. absolutely that'll yeah like, and every band has at least one song right now with a working title where the working title is the name of the band that the song sounds like. <laughs> one, I have that. <laughs> I have so many, mo literally anytime that I've like done songwriting for uh, for like work for hire, whether it's been like making a wrestling song or, or, or uh, if I've been commissioned to like write a thing, I'm like, tell me three songs and I'll just make it sound like those three exact songs as one thing and that's kind of what a lot of songwriting is like it's sure kind of like if you get three if you take three songs and are like can i shove them together that's a new song right there yeah and established bands as they continue certain motifs that become part of their identity right like mm -hmm. i remember the first time i think it was the first time ben wyman played me prancer i think the song was and i was like oh this is like a 43 percent burnt thing but it isn't you're not just repeating 43 percent burnt but it's and and he sort of acknowledged like yeah it's it's it, it, it becomes a thing where you can sort of reference yourself you know and at yeah. 72 seasons there's you must burn has like a sad but true groove and there's a song that uh has like a, a you know a, a floor tom bass kind of inner sandman thing happening and and you can certainly forgive those those established kind of legacy bands that get into a catalog where it's like, well, it, I mean, it, it sounds like them. They're referencing their own thing. Late Metallica, I think is one of the, is one of the strangest, uh, experiences. Like, I don't think that late Metallica is, is bad. Actually, there's this guy who tweeted something about the new Metallica record and I think he accidentally said like one of the most insulting things I've ever heard. I was, I, I'm like, I'm a comedian. I in metal, I've made countless dumb Metallica jokes. So many more, like thirty, thirty a year maybe, for my like the entire successful period of my life. Uh, but nothing has been more insulting than this guy who tweeted, um, like, uh. Metallic he was trying to defend them and he was like Metallica like the new album you need to understand this band has nothing to prove anymore they don't need to 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 do that and right now they're making like songs that they don't want to make 
So you need to listen to it, it. Like you need to listen to it for what it is. And I was like, number one, that's so mean to say that they don't want to make this stuff. Um, and what it, we have to listen to it for what it is. Like we, you want us to listen to music that someone didn't want to make. That sounds insane. We should not. If that's the context, then we shouldn't participate in it. And we understand what he means by they don't have anything to prove anymore, but you still want art to be, to have that. It, and I'm sure, and Metallica would certainly argue that they still have that hunger and that fire and that idea that they yeah. do have something to prove, or else, you know, you're tapped. Yeah, totally. I do think that there is a part of them that's like, we have strayed too many times and people are not into it anymore. So we've got to figure out a way to do a version of what we used to do that we like, which is what I think that they are doing. I think people forget that. I think when people go in listening to Metallica, they expect a lot of it, forgetting what they've been through, forgetting that like so many key elements of like the, the Metallica that we know are just not, there anymore and it's and and that's okay and they that's why we get like uh, the black album forward um metallica were, were like cliff was such a big part of the the three albums that people most that's the sound that most people attribute to metallica and i think an, and another piece of that uh, is at least the the, the never-ending riff encyclopedia is Dave Mustaine, and Metallica can uh, can like James and Lars can do all of those things, but they're not to the like they're not as hyper focused on classical composition and thrash and thrash riff writing as like Dave and Cliff, and I think. With those two elements removed, like they had to become a, they, they had to become something different at that point. Um, this is just this is just the way that I kind of understand it. So when I listen to uh, like Black Album Forward, I'm just listening to a band kind trying to figure out what it is. And each, I think every album kind of feels like that. Every Every album, Black Album Forward, kind of has this reset feeling. Like, this is what Metallica is now. And each time, it has a very different vibe. And I think, like, going from Black Album to to Load and Reload and St. Anger, those are three, those three in a row. And each of those is are so, like, are, are almost complete... Uh, you could tell me they're a different, completely different bands. My, if it weren't for James singing, I would not be able to find the connective tissue uh, upon first listen. And then when you get to like the hardwired, like we're trying to figure out how to write our uh, like stuff, like our old thrash stuff. But twenty years after the fact, when we've, you know, we have to do it also in the context of thousands of bands that have been inspired by us and been taking what we've done and 
evolving it and whatnot. Like, how do we feel evolved, but also like ourselves? And also without these two key elements that did help define what we sounded like back then. It's a daunting task. And, you know, listening, I feel like listening to it, it, it's, it's fun to hear them have fun. But there is also a little, a little bit of an element to it where it's like, this might feel like what an AI of Metallica would sound like at times. Someone else used that exact same phrase to me the other day. Yeah. And uh, what's funny is a good friend of mine, and he had said that uh, after two or three of the 72 season songs had come out. And then now as we're taping this episode, the record's been out a little less than a week. And that same friend came back to me today and was like, I love the record now. He's like, I've, he's like, I've realized I, I you know, with, with one exception, he's like, I love every Metallica record. It's just, it's, it's like pizza. I, I'm always going to love pizza, no matter what restaurant it's from or, and, uh, and I, I understand that. And I think jumping off from the point you're making the biggest, if there's a through line on 72 seasons that I hear, I feel like this started with hardwired and then continues tenfold on this record. They sound comfortable in their own skin for the first time. And I feel like what you were describing every record, you know, you have justice, which was this cold, uh, you know, harsh sounding album with sprawling progressive songs and, you know, changing time signatures and, and so on. And then you get the black album, which is a total uh, reaction to that. That's suddenly very rhythmic and uh, grooving and large and thick and warm sounding. And then, uh, you know, you get into the nineties and, and load and reload have some Alice and chain, some Soundgarden, but also some, Thin Lizzy and Zeppelin and Aerosmith and things that they liked even before they found new way for British heavy metal. There's all these different things that they've explored. I feel like now as they're all hitting like 60 years old, they've really found this pocket of like, we know who we are. We know what we sound like. We're able to incorporate, you know, things that people who just found us via stranger things will appreciate as well as things that people who have been following us every step of the journey will appreciate, as well as things that we will have fun, like you said, and be inspired to, um, you know, want to continue to make records. And, and and also when you put them against a lot of their peers, uh, of course, the most obvious thing is that they're the most successful among their peers. But they're also, when it comes to studio albums, one of the least prolific. When you look at how many records you know, even just looking at the rest of the big four, how many records deep each of those bands are relative to Metallica. But then when you really take a look at the history, you also realize they've always been busy, you know, for all the years that they aren't putting out a new studio album, there's SNM, there's SNM two, there's garage days, there's garage Inc. Mm -hmm. There's the 3d film. There's some kind of monster. There's playing on every con, you know, first band to play on every continent in the calendar year. And they're, they're constantly, you know, Orion music fest. There, there was constantly something, happening the lou reed record uh so they've always been busy and prolific but if you were to just you know if you were introducing someone to them for the first time and were to say this band's been around 40 plus years here's how many albums they have it, it's like shockingly few right. relative to you know what most bands turn out in four decades but i feel like yeah they they have really to your point i think really arrived at something that is very singular and distinct to them that can sound fresh and sound fun and doesn't sound like them 
competing with the ways that the genre has involved, but also do- doesn't sound necessarily retrograde. I mean, I, th- I think that was one of the criticisms of Death Magnetic was, well, this sounds like a band trying to sound like their old selves. And, um, you know, I, and that's a that's a hard thing for anyone at any stage in, in life as you grow into adulthood. Um, I personally like Death Magnetic, but I also find that I don't go back to it as often as I have even hardwired, um, as I still do load and reload. Uh, it was a record that I was like, yeah, I love this. This is great for like the duration of the album cycle. <laughs> and then it sort of just got filed away. Um, so I listened to the first, I listened to the first four and the fourth one. I'm like, I, I feel like I'm such a typical metal guy. It's the first four. And I listen to and justice for Jason. I have that on my iPhone. Cause I want the, there needs to be bass on it. Otherwise I feel like I'm punishing myself. And even most of Injustice for all, like, uh, they, it, it, that's kind of the main reason that I brought up. Like cliff is the one who knows how to compose the long songs because of the classical composition background. They're writing on that record. There's a lot of songs that they're writing where they're not totally sure why the song is long. And I, you can kind of, and that happens. And every each part of those songs is like sick, but it's it's the, 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 sequencing and uh, flow is missing a little bit from certain, from some of the songs. But I still love it. I still think it's great. Um, and yeah, the the other. The other albums I've only listened to like a couple of times. Like I loved Black Album when I was like a kid, but it's I I was I heard it too much, and so I don't visit it as much because it's just like in my. I think for most people who like this genre, uh, this genre of music, the Black Album is just in your blood. You know it already. I think getting to getting to Metallica's height having the, their their level of expectation and also being the age they are like it's hard to be a like an an aging musician because the most successful versions of it that i've seen that your age has to be a part of what you're making it almost is johnny cash yes johnny cash and 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 Glenn Danzig, you had Johnny Cash right in front of you. You wrote songs for him. You wrote songs for Roy. If I could somehow creatively steer, manage Glenn Danzig's career, other than curating the catalog, which actually finally is kind of happening via Cleopatra, which I'm grateful for, he should be in his Johnny Cash phase now. You know, you're wet, you're weathered, your hair's thin. You know, these are things to embrace and and uh, make part of your thing. And it's like, yeah, that's a whole separate conversation. And I don't want to sound like I'm hating because I am a an avowed Dan fan like yourself for all of the, uh, yeah. you know, for better or worse, for all the good and the bad and the funny. And, the, you know, we all love the Count Chocula boxes and the abandoned house and all the memes and everything. And, and, and I'm sure I don't know that he would quite understand that loving the memes is is part of loving him. Yeah, I think it's you know, I feel like when you just when you become a famous person, 
you get you you inevitably you're going to be a little weird because you're living a very specific let you get to you're you're getting catered to a lot of the time you're getting you're getting told yes more than a regular person so you're just you're going to get into a really specific routine and you're living a very yeah. different life so you're going to end up with a, a uh, like an amount of cereal in your house that most people would who just don't have. You you just you you're going to end up with a website that looks like it was designed as an Angel Fire website in yeah. 1997 because no one's telling you, hey, this website's unacceptable. This website is unacceptable <laughs> and it's so old, and it's it, it it he had relevancy for like a so long decade and a half. Yeah. That's a long time. An impact, an influence, you know? Yeah. And he, you, you hit a certain, the thing is, is that I think the thing that affected Danzig the most was the switch was switching from analog recording to digital in the digital age. His mentality towards recording doesn't work. It doesn't work the same way. Like you can't just go in the studio and sing one take and go, don't put any bullshit on my voice and leave because in the digital format, there's nothing to, there literally isn't anything. You have to put bullshit on <laughs> the recorded voices. Sure. That's why his voice, that's why the mix on, uh, on like six forward, it always sounds insane because you can't, the, the, the studio that he needs, he's not going to, like he's not, He's not recording uh, to tape at Electric Ladyland anymore. He's going to a guy who's using Pro Tools and saying, don't put bullshit on my voice like the old day. Which is interesting because he he does, you know, I have interviewed him and it's funny we're talking about this because I agree. It all sounds very tinny and digital and, and a lot of that's got to be editing and mixing because he he does by the same turn. You know, the last time I spoke to him was around the time of the Skeletons record. And he was talking about how important it is to him to go to analog studios and how he only wants to record on tape. And so if that is still happening somewhere in that process, it has to be getting digitally, uh, you know, spoiled. <laughs> like it must be that it's like, all right. All right. Yes. Technically this is on tape, but it's right. going through pro tool. It's like, it's, putting it on tape afterwards or something. Something's it, happening that isn't. Yeah. I mean, imagine if he had made that Elvis record in like 1994. I mean, how incredible it would be. The Elvis cover in from 1994. Right. Really good. Yeah. How about an album of that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, his, his original song for less than zero, the, <gasps> the Robert Downey Jr. Movie is yeah. perfect. He, he, that's a top five Danzig song for me. It's so good. And that's a and that's a demo, by the way, to your point about. Uh, <laughs> so that song was uh, God, I was so excited to talk to him about this because there's not there wasn't much out there about it. And so I asked him, what is the Power and Fury Orchestra? And he said that was Rick's in-house band. And Rick's idea at the time was to have kind of a Motown sort of a 70s like, yeah, I'm going to have this band that is my band that when I work with a Roy Orbison or whoever, I put them with my band and the band's going to be the power and fury orchestra. And he asked Danzig to write a song for a uh, female soul singer. 
and Danzig wrote that song and tracked the vocal demo. And someone at the label said, why are you looking for a singer? Whoever this is sounds great. And so that's, that's the demo that was just made to like give to a singer. That's what's on the record. And it's so, it's incredible. It's so good. It is. It, I feel like all of those pieces are uh, a bit of a shame, but to the same point, to that tweet I brought up earlier where it's like, Metallica has nothing to prove. Danzig doesn't have any. It really does not. The oh. Misfit shows everyone I've gone to, like even when there's goofs and flubs and like Doyle unplugging his own guitar by accident, uh, Glenn coughing it directly into the mic. <laughs> uh, it, they're awesome. Yeah, they're still there's so much fun to go to, and that's such an aggressive, raw, punky uh, style that it's like it's perfect, even for the, his voice being a little weathered. It still sounds great on that Misfits stuff, yeah. and I I love them taking this victory lap. I think that they were probably my my intuition tells me that they were surprised by how not necessarily surprised that there was so much interest in that those first couple shows were so big but i think that they've been surprised by how by the legs it's had the yeah. fact that we're now what five six years into these shows and they continue to do them and they continue to be huge and uh, i think it's magnificent and it's a great sort of victory lap you even think about it from glenn's perspective like he didn't get popular until 1994 on his third band when his single got re-released and then right after that someone goes hey will you uh like the narrative is like hey will you get back together with your high school band and he's like what no <laughs> so to have so to be in a meeting one day and someone goes like please like this it's been 20 years can you get back together with your childhood band we'll we'll pay you so much money and you can play madison square garden imagine someone telling you that that's so that's got to be so weird because he doesn't know the like he doesn't have the context for as we were talking about like all of the this the specific lifestyle you live as a successful artist uh who's kind of a celebrity you just have a different experience he doesn't have the experience of the misfits having a cultural impact for the most yeah like when you hear him talk about the misfits people are people are like yeah cbgb he's like yeah we auditioned once and we never played like properly would it i'm not he doesn't feel like he's a part of it and it's it's a shame so yeah him getting a victory lap being the first punk band to play madison to headline madison square garden that fucking rocks incredible so cool and i'm one of those people that discovered the misfits and sam hayne and danzig via metallica uh because of not not only uh covering songs on the garage days ep but um mainly wearing the merch was my entryway to all of those bands was all of those guys constantly wearing misfits sam hayne and danzig shirts um right around the time the danzig the band was was getting going and that first record was coming out. So when that first record came out, I knew the Misfits and Sam Hain because of Metallica and was excited for like, oh, that guy's got another band. It's like the continuation of the band before that was the continuation of that band. So cool. And that speaks to, you know, when you were talking about the the influence, the impact, the the 
legacy of, of Metallica, a big part of that is the bands that they have championed and how much they have paid it forward in terms of constantly putting the bands they love in front of their fans and recognizing that they have a platform and audience and that they can do that. I, I, I like to, I like to try to imagine the first time that like Hank Sherman got his first royalty check from the merciful fate medley. You know, it's like, how great yeah. is that? Just as for metal as a community, you know, that, yeah, you know, when I had animal from anti nowhere league on the podcast, um, he was working in construction when they covered. So what? And then they brought him out. I think it was in 92 to sing. So what at Wembley. And it was the first time he'd like been on a stage in however long. And so anti nowhere league got back together shortly after that Wembley gig. And they've been going still since then. And that's from Metallica yeah. covering a B side of theirs. <laughs> you know, it's pretty, it's incredible. That like having Glenn having influence on bands. And also as we, to bring it back to talking about like his, his bootleg art style becoming the pro I mean we got it's got to be said it's like the biggest piece of just like metal streetwear iconography like the 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 fiend skull is unbelievable the fact that he did it twice twice yeah is nuts insane both are 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 such a huge deal and both are sick they're both great like that also had like that's how i found them like i i found them because like a girl i had a crush on in high school was wearing a misfit shirt and i was like i didn't know i figured they were a band but i don't know anything about them and then like after talking to her i went i got collection one and then i i was hooked immediately actually immediately struck like the first time i heard i heard it i was like this is what this 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 is what this skull sounds like. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the first time yeah. you hear it, it is jarring. Uh, it's jarring to be like, it's messy doo wop, messy Motown. What's going on? And then it hits. Yeah. And the lyrics sink in, and then you realize that it fucking kicks ass. Um. But I uh, yeah I think, um, I also love, you know, here like that to this day like james will talk about like his favorite records and like still november coming fire is like a top three for him and he's uncredited on the first danzig record but so unmistakable in those backups it's beautiful i feel like see um, look how much we've just talked without even i you you have protected your mystique well because we <laughs> Um, I, I really want to, before we're done, I really want to get back and unpack a, at least a little bit more okay. where the where the overlaps, where the convergence is for you with your love of comedy. Because not only are you a, a comedy fan, but you are a comedic personality that's quite good at it. I'm someone who loves a good pun, and Guarcinio Hall is, is one of the best. Uh, on Instagram, I, I think I saw right before we jumped on, I was digging around for you and i saw that you're wiener herzog i mean yeah. uh, you know we jump on uh to do this podcast you're david pasta wallace <laughs> so just it's you know two minutes till late night i mean i just i love a, a good pun and uh so i'm curious where that you know getting pulled in different directions between so i want to be a comedian do i want to be a musician do i want to be some combination of both which is ultimately where you, you landed 
yeah. what was the the genesis of i guess those competing loves and and the way that you've been able to combine them i feel like it's probably due to like neither of them working isolated mm. <laughs> mm, yeah i was yeah uh i had a I, i've had bands but all of them were like play three shows two of the members get in a fight and we break up right kind of bands and i was i that happened constantly and uh there was a moment uh i moved to la after college weirdly my entire i went to college in new york and i just was not it felt like the music scene in new york was at least on like uh it was in a weird spot where there wasn't a lot of metal or hardcore or anything it felt like it was mostly like every i guess it was people doing garage punk and uh or like kind of like kiss worship bands was this sort of like like the hives the strokes the vines sort of era that return of the rock quote unquote it was more like the there were like a lot of like diy spaces in brooklyn it's um and it, i think it was around the time of it was like 2009 oh, okay so a little later than what i'm saying yeah yeah, a little later, 2009 to 2012, like at least the underground scenes, it felt like there wasn't a, a big New York presence. Like there was hardcore and metal happening at the time, but it, they were helping. They, they were happening elsewhere, like um, like Trapped Under Ice and stuff was in a from a different place. So in New York at the time, I was like, I'm I'm going to like old. Hardcore. I'm going to. I'm seeing Madball and stuff, but where are the children? Where, right. where are? Where can I play this music with folks? I found uh, uh, my buddy, uh, my my high school drummer ended up in a band, starting kind of a hardcore band with uh, my my own. Do you know my own, the guitarist? Mm-mm. He has a new band. He's all over the place, but he uh, he has a. He has a new band with uh, Chris Adler from Lamb of God. Okay. Yeah, I'm um, familiar with that band. Yeah. But they they were the only peers that I knew that were starting hardcore bands in like the or like hardcore adjacent music uh, in in this era that, that were my age in like when I was uh, when I was in New York. And then I moved to L.A., and tried my hand at stand up and I was do I was doing all right with that. Uh I moved back to New York after a few years and I I, I I didn't know this. Let me only let yeah, let's pause for a second. So doing doing stand up in LA, you were I didn't open mics. Uh were you what what kind of rooms were you you know, were you, did you do like comedy store and improv and Wow. I I, I mostly did the store and then like weird bar gigs. Like I had a, a um getting booked on shows was, you know, kind of a, 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 like I did an op- I would do open mics in the valley cuz they were easier. It was easier to get up. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day like an open mic for me was like I want to practice my material. I don't really care about 
showing face in like an alt in, in an alt room. Like I didn't, I knew a lot of people tried to go to like the meltdown, yeah, uh, and do comedy there, which I did one time, and I was like, we're all only getting a minute thirty. Jonah's not here. <laughs> I don't. What are we doing? Um, yeah. It felt it felt like kind of a waste. So I did I did uh, open mics in the valley, and then I worked at a comic book shop down the street from Meltdown, and Gold, was, Golden Apple, Golden Apple. I, I live I live in or- I live in uh, near Seal Beach in Orange County. So oh cool yeah yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in Indiana, but I've been in California for the last twenty years. So cool. Well, I've played a, a, a couple of shows at the Slide Bar. Okay, yeah, I've been to the slide bar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, of, of the site of the Burn Halo Dirty Little Girl music video. Gross. <laughs> gross. They shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have called the song that. Yeah, I I would put I put on like a couple of uh, stand up shows at the comic book shop when they would have signings. Ah, that's a great idea. Of artists were. I was like, these people are just waiting in line. They're not doing it. Like, we'll put out some beer. And then it can be a show, but it's not a bringer show. So it's actually, you're you're going to do your bits for regular people who are not waiting their turn grumpily to go up. Right. And in turn, I like that's how I would get booked at, like, uh, the comedy store in the icebox. That's great. That's great. And because then you're also... It's not so much a captive audience, but it's but it's a it's a group of people who, are, like you said, are waiting in line. So I mean, they're bored, so they're are stoked to be entertained as opposed yeah, to not? folded arms and silently judging. You know, make try and make me laugh. Yeah, I you know grew up loving comedy and stand up and watching specials and and all of that sort of thing. And it somehow, you know, I've been out here twenty years, but it really just occurred to me four or five years ago how much is available right here. You know, because I don't necessarily go out that often. Right. And uh, I discovered this place I'm sure you're familiar with called Largo here in L.A. Oh, yeah. And it's like it's not a comedy club. It's a nice little seated old school theater uh, has a bar and like coffee adjacent to it. But it's where a lot of big comics that live in L.A. go to work out material. And yeah. I realized like, oh, you know, I can go to a show that's Sarah Silverman and Friends and first of all, see Sarah Silverman in a 300 cap room or whatever. But secondly, the the friends are going to be Larry David or Pete Holmes or, you know what I mean? It's like, it's always this like unannounced bill. Of, and the most fun for me as a comedy fan, and this was just sort of by happenstance, I was going regularly enough. And a lot of times just by myself, uh, I was going regularly enough that I watched Anthony Cheselnik build a new hour over the course of about a year. Yeah. To where when that next Netflix special came out, I was like, ah, this bit that's his closer. I remember when that was in the middle and why, and it started, it became really fun for me to, uh, you know, you would think you don't want to hear the same joke twice, but I, I got really into the nuances of um, how the rhythms change. And yeah, I mean, there was one night where in the, uh, in the improv, the Hollywood improv, there's, um there's a room that is tiny. I mean, maybe seats 20 people. I don't want to exaggerate, but it's like a few tables and I want to say it seats 20 people. And um, I just happened to go on a whim and it was Nikki Glaser the night before she taped a special. And it was literally 
her with her iPad and some notes and yeah. me and 14 other people. And it was just so like, okay, yeah, I gotta, I gotta make myself go out. Cause I live close to this. <laughs> I can just show up and see this. It, it's incredible. It's amazing. The one thing I miss, I, I like, I have complicated feelings about UCB. Mm. Um, I think by the end they were um, like kind of taking advantage of their promise to like, uh, I, I don't know. And it, it, it got weird. The thing I miss about UCB in, in, in New York specifically is uh, Monday uh, whiplash, which was this, a, a night where it would literally be, it's a free, it was a free show and like every of like usually usually just like a group of regular comedy fans would show up there at 11 p.m. for a free comedy show where it's literally the 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 whole thing was like you're you're gonna see people working on their bit so like yeah it's not finished jokes don't record anything it's people figuring it out and I saw I saw comedians just try shit uh like every monday and it was fucking awesome it's so even if it didn't work it was like it was cool to see them like almost trying an entirely different persona yeah what i know them you're established but your vibe is different like they're i don't want to i i'm i'm gonna obey the code of whiplash which i mean and not name any names but there was like there was a comedian who's like famous for being like really loud and like hey, hey hey and i saw him do like a really dark set and i was like this is so weird but i actually kind of think it's cool yeah he never did any of that material <laughs> one time thing he, i think he decided nope this is not I mean, it's, it's not working for me, but I I think aspects like that are cool. I also think it's underrated. You know, we talk about, you know, special treatment and guest lists and stuff like all that stuff honestly makes me really uncomfortable. Like, it's, sure. I like I'm like, hooray. It's cool to not pay $30, but like, I feel like then I'm like. All right, <laughs> like I, I kind of I. I like going to a show that I paid for and it that I get to participate in the show as much as I want. Yes, or as little as you want. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like I can be like I you know what? I was here for the opener. I'm leaving. Yeah. Or whatever. Like I I like being able to I also just like also just going like uh like I this this band speed from is Australian hardcore band. Like I, I don't get, I don't get hardcore special treatment ever. Cause I'm not, I'm not from that world. Um, but going and support and like, I love to go to like a hardcore show and just watch Like my girlfriend doesn't listen to hardcore. So I'm just going on my own watching the children kill each other. <laughs> to these new it's fuck it it's the the shows are crazy i love showing up and then piecing out yeah it's great i also like that i'm 
go i i'll go i'll buy a ticket i'll support the whole system i buy a merch and then i'm and then i'm done yeah great i don't want anything from it i don't need anything else than just what the show is i think that that's a lot of fun and i think it gets underrated and you're talking it's the same thing with you um finding that in in comedy as well i i i have not participated in like live comedy in a long time other than like to see my friends but i miss it here's a story that i think you'll appreciate probably the coolest thing that happened in in that period where i was going a lot to largo specifically i forget who the headliner was but it was one of those you know so and so and friends and one of the surprise guest was Andy Kindler and he was on stage and he was doing this bit. He was talking about Chris Rock and he was going, uh, you know, Chris Rock repeats everything twice. Chris Rock repeats everything twice. And then from just the back of the room, the unmistakable voice of Norm MacDonald, but you only repeated it once. <laughs> whole crowd loses it and 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 norm is i mean it gives me chills <laughs> norm's my favorite stand-up of all time all time oh my god and uh and that's the only time i ever got to see him he was on that show he was the secret headliner you know he went up last and did like i don't know 40 minutes like a full set but yeah he you know that's the place where you're gonna hear norm mcdonald heckling andy kindler from the back of the room so you're in, so you're in LA. You're you're doing stand up. You come back to you come back to New York. Yeah, I get. Uh, I, I'm kind of constantly getting pulled between like music, film, comedy. Like usually one thing. A, a music was always like a a hobby. It was never going to be my main thing. Mostly because like I had parents growing up who just were like who didn't take that seriously so i was like okay um but uh like comedy was easy because i could do it by myself but film was the career i moved out uh to la to to do film and when you say do film you mean direct edit produce uh, well i was gonna be like a post-production pa uh when i first got out there um but the movie i was gonna work on got canceled like they shelved it they fired the director and they shelved the movie and i was like okay uh and i started doing stand-up and working at a comic book shop because without that like first connection to a job in la it's almost it is nearly impossible to get work in the film industry um that 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 can it, you can't it's hard to start the ladder so i just was i was like i'm gonna focus on comedy and just trying to get any job and then i got offered a, a job editing a bunch of music videos uh like in new york regularly so i moved back to do that um the new york comedy scene was a lot different than the LA, la one or at least sure. the one that i had built for myself and um i just uh i i stopped being able to find time to do stand up for a hot minute and then i ended up 
working at like a a media company um and that's kind of what what i was i was editing and i made friends with a bunch of producers and that's kind of where uh like a window opened for me hmm. to be able to pitch uh two minutes to late night so we originally made the pilot for thinking that it would get uh picked up uh at this at this network but then the guy pitched it to and like his entire team they all got fired and then we were like well we have this pilot let's put it on youtube and it's also very much like the music business, right? Like my band, we had this and that. And we met with 10 different major labels and we finally picked one and we were recording our debut album and our A&R guy got fired. And then we got dropped and then we, you know, yeah. Cave it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's great about your story is that, you know, you created this, you, you, you conceive of this great show, you come up, you have a unique idea, you have a, you know that there's a specific audience for it that exists out there you make this pilot but yeah you really make it in hopes that it's going to get some kind of series order it's going to go to some kind of the network or maybe then the idea becomes maybe it lands on a streamer but how and not to say that things like that couldn't still be in the future or or part of the plan but what you've been able to build diy with youtube uh and it's just amazing you know, I mean, the idea that there, that you you have an audience. There's things people want to see. The the cover series the stuff comes out on Bandcamp. There's just there's a whole culture, a whole audience that's built up around what you're doing. And I don't know that that happens for you or happens in quite the same way. Had this been like, oh, we got a six episode order from, you know, whatever network that aired it at you know 11 p.m. on Saturdays. I mean, yeah, it might have not happened there's a there are days where i'm like it maybe would have been nice if that happened and then we just did it and then moved on <laughs> <laughs> you know the makeup takes an hour and a half uh but yeah I, you should you should talk to the guys from twisted sometime <laughs> i honestly <laughs> anybody I who does that cp i would love to talk to them you know it, it, the whole show everything is kind of an accident like me even being the host of the show is an accident. I we built the show originally around uh Dave Hill, the comedian and oh. good friend of ours. Yeah, uh, D- Dave Hill who has been a guest on this very podcast. He's the best. I didn't I I had no idea about this connection. Crazy. Yeah, he's been on the show a bunch, uh playing different characters, but originally he was supposed to be like whatever the host character was going to be. And we set the shoot date and um, it turns out like that same weekend, he was like, this is this is how you know when the, the we filmed the show. He was like, uh, E needs me to fly to Austin, Texas to interview Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway. Uh, I have to do that. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, that's a lot. That's Anne Hathaway and Robert De Niro money. You gotta go. Um, And at that point, I was like, well, Drew needs to direct. And I know all of these, like, we can just 
shoot this as a proof of concept. Um, like we already have Ben Wyman. I will just, I'll just do it. And like, I can be like replaced later. <laughs> this is, this is your, you and me less than zero demo. Yeah. <laughs> and someone said, just use the demo. And then we put it out and now I'm here. And it was, it was cool. Even, well, even our most successful period, like the bedroom covers were planned before the pandemic even oh really i didn't know i just assumed that was peak pandemic uh, product yeah no we had that's why we were able to get a head start on them is because mm. we had we had them already we we filmed it honestly to just there were a lot of guests that we wanted to get that like you know it's hard to be like hey are you free and do you want to come to New York for no like no money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Essentially. What a pitch. Uh, what a pitch. Uh so we you know, we Chelsea Wolf had always wanted to do Crazy Train uh on the show. Like that was kind oh. of her thing. Uh <laughs> after we did after she after John Baisley did Purple Rain, she was like, I want to do Crazy Train. And we had this the demo for it, the exact one that we do in the bedroom cover for year like five years we had that just sitting around um and we were like well why don't we do a thing where we just like film isolated uh like steve and i can film in my house and then like chelsea can record from like wherever her studio just so we can get this done and then i was like okay well we why don't we do some other stuff like uh we recorded um that and the, we were like the first one should be a weird owl cover to try to get weird owl's attention <laughs> in some way that didn't happen but it didn't um, no i don't think he's seen it he's the he's he's the best he's the whole he was i mean that's another big there's no gorsenio hall without Weird Al Yankovic. Is the yeah, Corn and Weird Al happened at the same time. Amazing. You hear Weird Al and you're like, this guy's so talented. I could never do that. But Corn, I was like, I can, <laughs> I can be the Weird Al of metal. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, but we put all these together and uh we had like three we had um we had uh the Weird Al cover, Riff Raff by ACDC and crazy and and crazy train all done before the pandemic is even before covid is even discussed <clears throat> we shot um we were we shot uh the our boston cover in in saint vitus literally like two weeks before everything hits and the boston wow. cover was supposed to be the first thing that comes out to let people know that we're just gonna do a like we're just gonna do some covers and have a weird time uh while we're not making the show and then it ended up being uh like the perfect template to be able to do something uh to give musicians something to focus on that wasn't the pressure of trying to write an album right it, when they're having the same perspective as everyone else in the world um 
and uh like also maybe just like a little bit of money at the time so you know it's also weird that that's our most successful period it's our biggest boom was when everyone else was having the worst time <laughs> right right you almost feel guilty that it's i sure do working so well yeah i i didn't yeah. enjoy a second of it i think about when i think about the two minutes to late night i mean there's so many amazing moments you know dwayne in the middle of the day in a cemetery I, I wanted to uh, to talk about the Danzig Library homage. I mean, there are so many Easter eggs that are so part of, they're so specific to this culture, and that's what makes it great. You know, when those little jokes pop up and you feel like you're in because you're like, this is this joke is tailored specifically to me, and then you realize there's like more of you out there that are also yeah. that are you know that's how that's why the joke works. This is a a great place to land the plane, so to speak, because it's the Metallica themed podcast uh, and Passover wasn't that long ago as we're recording this. Tell me about creeping death and that coming together old Testament featuring a member of Testament, which even just again, the puns, the, I mean, yeah, Alex Skolnick, who's been on the show, who's a friend, friend of the show, friend of mine. Uh, I loved seeing him in that. So, but yeah, how did that, how did that all come together? So, you know, it actually, uh, it came together I, Metallica was a band where I was like, we're never going to cover Metallica. Interesting. And we, up, and we have two Metallica covers. There, the first one we did is probably one of my favorite things that we've ever done on the show um, because the idea is crazy. <laughs> and the first one is uh, a blackened cover where we shifted, we switched the BPMs of the song. Yes. So the first half of it is slow, and the middle half is as fast as the original. And it's insane. It shouldn't be possible. How can we take a song that's already hard and make it harder for ourselves? <laughs> yeah. Well, also, respectfully, trying to figure out what the groove is that song is because it's like a little off so like trying to communicate like i the count is this it's, it's it was crazy and then slowing it down that's one of my favorites um and then i was like all right but no no more metallica ever and then uh then actually last year we a few like i i forget exactly how it happened but i was like uh in 2022 early january it was like it would be fun ah it would be fun to take creeping death which is my favorite probably my favorite metallica oh, my favorite metallica song which is about passover and as a chosen person a member of the tribe that always felt like a cool little secret to me that it's like, yeah, this is a song about the most important Jewish holiday. It's the cool. So to me, I'm like, this is the coolest holiday song that makes me and my hair. It makes me feel cool about my heritage a little bit. Yeah. I was like, it'd be fun to like take this song. That's about the story of Passover and make it a story about a Passover. Yeah. Take the song written by the Goyams. Emma, did I use did I use that in the right contextually? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Or is Goyam or is Goyam already plural? Uh Goyam is is plural. I learned this from Ari Shafir's new special Jew, by the way. Speaking of New York comedy. Yeah, there you go. Continue. Um but we uh I yeah, I then Drew and I talked about it and he would he had like a very specific Passover Seder story that he wanted to write about when he was like in middle school and just drank drank the Elijah wine and got really drunk. <laughs> and I think so great. it was ador- uh, adorable uh, and poignant. But we, one thing that we 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 got uh, we got Alex Golnick on board very quickly. We got. Um, and then we got Neely Broche also. And we were like, that's, of course, this, these are the guitar players for the song. And originally what I was trying to do is um, have it be all Jewish musicians. Um, I had the hardest time finding a prominent Jewish bass player. Interesting. I had such a a weird time. I was like, are there no, are there none of us? Do we, there are no rhythms that we're not holding down the rhythm at all. Uh, So eventually what happened is, is that I was, um, we missed, we missed that Passover. Ah, I see. We'll either have to, it was always going to be about, all right, if we can't get all, all Jewish musicians, then maybe we'll change the idea. It won't be me singing it. We'll go, we'll do an actual creeping death cover and then we'll find like a really fun singer. Like I tried to reach out to uh, a wrestler that was part of a J pop band named Maki Ito. She's super funny. She rules. She has a great voice, but I was like, it'd be really funny if there's just like this crazy, uh, like, j-pop singer on this song singing creeping death like that'll kick ass um and but then eventually we got in touch with like paul from cannibal corpse i was like sick um and then uh once i started talking to him he was gonna record he was he's for some reason on every list about like metal Jewish musicians, but he's not a Jewish person. He just has a Polish last name. So I was like, all right, well, Paul's already about to record. So that idea is out. We'll just, I hit up. <laughs> this is all right. I didn't know this. <laughs> yeah. Paul is not, is not, a, is not Jewish. He just has. This is so great. This is so great. Well, this is also the, this is why like, Jewish, the religion, Jewish, the heritage. Sure, we, we shouldn't have. We shouldn't have done all that. Yeah, people assume Paul from Cannibals Jewish. They don't assume that Captain Kirk is Jewish. You know? Right. Yeah, they don't. They, they don't know Paul Rudd's Jewish, but they think. Uh, yeah. Insane. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, insane. Um, but yeah, Paul, not not Jewish, sick ass drummer. Uh, we were like, well, what? All right, well that. I'll just we'll just do it anyway, and they'll just be honorary members of the tribe. And then we got yeah. Phil from Minas. I after that, I was like, "All right, it's Paul Landfill. Come on, let's just finish the. Let's get this done." <laughs> <laughs> and then we finished it at the end of the summer. Um, 
and then just we sat on it for uh, however many months for like six months yeah i'm pretty sure no, all those guys thought the cover was shelved for a while that's right it was like hey guess what this is coming out and you're like no check your calendar we're not there we're you know we gotta get gotta get to passover <laughs> we gotta get to passover folks yeah um but yeah those are i think that's like that one means a lot to me because of what creeping death means it's the most it's the least minus the lyrics it's the least imaginative cover we've ever done it's a straight cover one of the only straight covers we've ever done. i mean but what you and after what you've done with black and you, you certainly had earned you didn't have anything to prove to anybody to bring us full circle <laughs> there you go you'd already done that yeah you, yeah, and I and you know, and I, I can imagine as uh, for members of the tribe, something like creeping death in the metal community that in some ways is uh, can be hostile uh, in certain uh, areas of it. Certainly, uh, apples and oranges. So let me preface this by saying I'm making the comparison for comedic effect, but probably not unlike when House of Pain came out when I was in high school as a as an Irish Catholic kid who who really liked hip hop. There, you know, like the Beastie Boys being the Jewish yeah. hip hop group. Like we found, we had we had an Irish an Irish uh, rap group, and yeah, there you go. You know, that was fun. <laughs> there, there is just that weird, like you know, it doesn't really matter, but it, but it does. But yeah, it doesn't. It, it, it makes it, you feel a little extra. This one's uh, for this one's for me a little bit. Yeah, and we, I don't know. Um, it felt good amongst all of the like bizarrely public anti-semitism of the past couple of years to just to, to to do stuff to be like hey yeah there are like uh like i don't know there are cool jewish people doing stuff it's cool that alex golnick is like the best guitarist in the world and he's a proud jewish guy exactly Roche, death clock danny elfman she's in everything cool she is also a jew a jewish person like um that's that's not not helpful um and yeah i don't know i um I, you brought up like kind of we have nothing to prove but it's also at this point i don't know if i have any more ideas <laughs> we covered every song that i've wanted to cover like we have a we have a couple that are not released yet but literally at this point we have covered every like including the ones that are banked we've covered every song that i've ever even thought of covering and that feels crazy <laughs> that that's feels pretty crazy. incredible yeah and, and and it's a very specific niche that you've filled you know and in, in, in not only in assembling and and you know, there were other people who were doing quarantine bedroom covers, but I feel like you had set the bar and established something and that the the production value, which sounds funny to say about bedroom covers, but just that, you know, costuming, wardrobe, angles, uh, edits, jokes, Easter eggs, that was just on such another level than what other folks were doing that, that there was there was room for all of it. It, it didn't make it feel like people were just outright copying it almost felt more like you had inspired you know i'm sure there was maybe one or two that you saw and you were like hey it was a little close but um Honestly, but, but you guys really did command that space i thought we i mean we 
we have a un, we had like an unfair head start and also you know it's helpful because we you know we had the established way we do like we had always done covers a little bit different like covers were a part of the stage show yeah and we had always done them in a weird way like we had always tried to find a way to have like an angle on it or a way to transform it and make it not exactly like the original and um i think with me being able to focus on what happens in the song and then pass off almost like have the responsibility of what the thing looks like be drew's responsibility and that's all he's focused on that's help that's a that's a leg up also and anytime that i saw any quarantine cover i was i like i never it never felt like competition or 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 anything like that like that was just i was like these everyone is just having fun there was a looseness and a and a and a, and a, a spirited sense of fun that was prevalent through that yeah and that was what you were doing before and after the pandemic so yeah well we're still doing them to finish up like the ideas and like you know i think it's cool we found this new angle um with like the the hardcore forever subcategory where it's like mostly a lot of newer bands like i'm mostly paying attention to like a, a lot of the newer bands these days are hardcore or like death metal hardcore adjacent and giving all these musicians an opportunity like these newer bands an opportunity to like cover idols that probably a lot of our fans or our older fan base will know about um and thus pay attention to these newer bands is cool like i'm not on them a lot of the time and they're usually straight covers and it's i like that we can that's a new opportunity is to take i'm like i've covered every song i've wanted to do so i just have removed myself from the desire from like what i i don't have to make the choice i can ask you know other musicians like what do you want to do what kind of cover what what would you want to play and then they get to build their own uh thing and then then drew and i get to put our heads together to like all right well how can we make it fun for them to do it so i'm okay with uh two minutes you know becoming a little bit less of a guarsenio platform and more of just like a a platform for people celebrating the music that they love and that's that's cool it might it's going to be more like niche um but that's just where the youtube channel's kind of going and we're gonna you know we did a we did a i'm sorry a valentine's day show that we're editing together that'll come out pretty soon that was a lot of fun it felt good to like it felt like the old show when we did it mm, awesome. in my opinion it's the funniest stage bit we've ever done it was we did the heart the dating game with hard melissa and it was so amazing, funny. amazing. It was the best i'm excited for people to see it 
uh, people who miss the old show, they're going to have a good time watching it. I love it. And I love, and just to say again, you know, uh, just the, the bringing together all those different experiences and interests, you really hit upon something special between the late night format. The, you know, it's almost like a combination of, of, of a late night talk show and something like kill Tony and then metal and hardcore. You know what I mean? It's just like all these things that just, again, yeah, it's, it, it's like that Danzig curating of like, you knew to take the famous monsters and combine it with the pre-code horror and combine that with this old serial. And then the, you know, it's just that, that same sort of magic that comes about. Jordan, thanks so much for making the time to do this and committing so much time to it. And love to have you back on again. And we broke the ice. Now, next time somebody assumes we know each other, I can tell them they're correct. Yeah, there you go. Look at that. Awesome. Take care.